today on EcoReport. The bottom line here is the electric utility industry is entering the death throes of their current business model because distributed power and energy efficiency is going to get to the point where our houses can stand alone in energy. We bring you a portion of the League of Women Voters annual legislative update. EcoReport is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Aaron Comforti. Indiana House Bill 1494, which environmentalists say would weaken Indiana's laws regulating confined animal feeding operations, commonly called CAFOs, is being discussed in committee this week. Bill 1494 would remove some current regulations on CAFO construction and expansion projects. According to Kim Ferraro, senior staff attorney for the Hoosier Environmental Council, the bill would remove the public's right to comment on proposed expansions to existing CAFOs. Ferraro says that the giant cattle, hog, and poultry farms with hundreds or even thousands of animals have massive manure pits that threaten public health, local ecosystems, and regional waterways. The millions of gallons of livestock waste generated at CAFOs, like feces and even animal carcasses, are collected in unlined earthen football field-sized lagoons and without treatment are spread on surrounding properties. Ferraro also said that it is not uncommon for existing CAFOs to double or triple in size. On paper, these expanded facilities are only considered one CAFO, but are essentially brand new facilities that can have additional serious health impacts on people who live within a few miles of the CAFO. It's critical, Ferraro said, for neighbors who are going to be affected by CAFO expansion to have their voices heard. Indiana Senate Bill 420, another proposed bill that may get a vote on the floor of the Indiana Senate, would designate 10% of public state forests as old-growth no-harvest zones. That percentage would significantly increase the current total area of old-growth no-harvest zones at a time when logging of state forests is at an all-time high. The Indiana Forest Alliance, the Hoosier Environmental Council, and other environmental groups say they are pushing for bore Bill 420 because the Department of Natural Resources has failed to meet its own commitments to set aside adequate old-growth no-harvest zones. This week, a Senate committee heard testimony on Senate Bill 420 at a well-attended public hearing. Seven scientists and one hiker spoke in favor of the bill, citing the importance of species diversity in unlogged forests and prior Department of Natural Resources commitments to officially set aside 10% of state forests as no-harvest zones. The head of the Division of Forestry, John Seifert, spoke in opposition to the bill and claimed that, in fact, younger forests are in short supply, not the old-growth sections of the forest. The dispute over what kind of forest is in short supply is, in part, due to different philosophies of forest management. 
When Division of Forestry head John Seifert said short supply, he was referring to a quota of loggable state forest timber that is annually sold on the market for profit. His position is right in line with the field of forestry, which the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines as the management of forested land primarily for harvesting timber. Seifert's forestry-based position contrasts with the Indiana Forest Alliance and Hoosier Environmental Council's more ecology-based position, which prioritizes the importance of healthy relationships between organisms and their environments in the state forests over timber sale quotas. Committee Chair Sue Glick will decide in the next week if the bill will be brought to the Senate floor for a vote. We'll hear more about the state legislator coming up later in the show. The Veterans Administration, or VA, has offered a plan to spare the biggest trees at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis, where they had previously proposed clear-cutting the rare urban old-growth forest. The VA sparked controversy when it gave relatively little public notice of its intent to build a veteran's monument over the old-growth forest. Some of the trees on the site are more than 350 years old. After a legal battle and public outcry, the VA offered to not cut any tree with a circumference of 40 inches or greater. EcoReport correspondent Norm Holy contacted Jeff Stant, executive director of the Indiana Forest Alliance, for a response. We appreciate the VA's offer, but it's beside the point. We're not trying to just save some large trees. We are trying to save a forest. It's an old-growth pre-settlement forest. The records the city has indicates it's actually a virgin forest. There's never been any cutting in it, and little evidence of even livestock uh, grazing anywhere in it. And so it's an extremely rare example of the forest that once covered Indiana, and particularly central and northern Indiana, where they're so thoroughly stripped of forest for this kind of of old-growth uh, relic uh, forests of our past to still survive inside inner city Indianapolis is miraculous. And so what we're trying to do is save this forest. And that means that the, the, the dead trees, the leaning trees, the uh, understory, the pole saplings, the ground uh, uh, litter, the leaf litter, uh, the moss, the rocks, all those things are as important as those big trees. We're still imploring the, the Department of Veterans Affairs to look at any one of the uh, plethora of other sites uh, that have not been examined at all across the city, in the city's cemeteries, including in Crown Hill Cemetery, where they could put this proposed veteran cemetery without taking out a woods, much less a virgin forest. And last week, Report ran a story and a video published by the Sacred Stone Camp that appeared to show Bureau of Indian Affairs officers following and then injuring a demonstrator by striking them in the knees with police batons. The video has since been substantiated by supportkrow.org. The victim of the assault is known as Crow, a veteran eco-activist currently supporting the no-dapple struggle and previously involved in anti-mining actions in Wisconsin. Morton County Correctional Center is currently imprisoning Crow, and their bail was set at $100,000 with a cash-only stipulation. Crow's assault comes as the company behind the pipeline, Energy Transfer Partners, has begun drilling and construction on a section of the pipeline that will go under the Missouri River. 
It's one of the last unfinished sections of the pipeline and by far the most controversial, as a rupture would send oil into the largest drinking water source in the region, one that supports millions of people and animals. On February 12th, the journal Nature, Ecology and Evolution reported that synthetic industrial chemical pollutants exist deep under the sea. Scientists studying the Mar Mariana Trench in the Western Pacific, one of the planet's most remote habitats, found high levels of polychlorinated biphenols, or PCBs, and polybrominated diphenyl ethers, or PBDEs, in marine organisms. The chemicals contaminate organisms living at the bottom of the ocean at levels equal to those found in some of the most polluted waterways in the world. The researchers found the chemicals in waters up to 10,000 meters deep. Both PCBs and PBDEs can cause various adverse health effects, including neurological, immune, and reproductive problems. They're also known to cause cancer in humans. People customarily think of the deep ocean as one of the most remote and pristine places on the Earth. However, this research shows that the deep ocean is highly connected to surface waterways and the human-made pollutants contaminating them. Bloomington, Indiana is well known for being one of the most PCB-contaminated locations in the world. For decades, a bass in Clear Creek was the most contaminated organism ever tested for PCBs. The industrial manufacturing company Westinghouse, in cooperation with the city of Bloomington and Indiana University, used Monroe County as its regional hub for dumping its PCB-contaminated equipment. Hundreds of sites throughout Monroe County have tested positive for PCBs, and hundreds if not thousands of additional locations are suspected of contamination. And the use of synthetic chemicals like PCBs, but also including drugs, pesticides, and other industrial substances, is expanding quickly, but U.S. government funding for studies on how they affect the environment isn't keeping up. That's the conclusion of a December opinion piece published in Environmental Science and Technology. Since the 1980s, the piece states, there's been a steep decline in the amount of funding available for external research grants from the EPA, which has the primary responsibility for regulating chemical use. Furthermore, few journal articles or grants from the National Science Foundation's Division of Environmental Biology, the nation's primary funder of academic ecological research, deal with the issue. Chemicals with unknown and untested environmental impacts continue to be approved for commercial use. Since the 1970s, the production of synthetic chemicals has increased greatly and millions of new substances enter the market every year. And the company that operates a toxic waste dump in Uniontown, Alabama, has been forced to settle a $30 million defamation suit it filed last year against four town residents who had vocally opposed having the company's coal ash discarded in the dump. The ACLU represented the residents, saying the suit exemplified the systematic racial and environmental injustice that African Americans have been subjected to throughout U.S. history and European colonization. Uniontown is 91% black, its median annual household income is under $15,000. The dump has been taking in coal ash since 2008. The coal ash is a byproduct of burning coal and contains carcinogenic chemicals. Uniontown residents claim they've developed numerous health problems since the dump began accepting coal ash and have had companion animals die from related complications. The Organization of Uniontown Residents founded to oppose coal ash dumping, says it will continue to struggle to prevent any more coal ash from being dumped in its community. 
In Bolivia, the government has declared a national state of emergency due to water shortages throughout vast regions of the country. This comes after more than half of the country's 339 municipalities have declared states of emergency amid the worst drought in 25 years. More than 47,000 wildfires, burning a total of 9.9 million acres, have swept across the country in the last two months alone. The drought has prompted protests in major cities and conflicts between miners and farmers over water use. Last week, a group of residents of El Alto, Bolivia's second largest city near La Paz, briefly took the authorities of a local water distribution company hostage to demand the government explain its plans to mitigate the shortage. And that's the news for this week. For Eco Report, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Aaron Comforti. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or if you have any future story ideas. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And sometimes the world can seem like it's falling apart, and we at EcoReport vow to document the world's fiery destruction. No, no, just kidding. We vow to keep you informed so that you can take direct action to prevent the world's fiery destruction. And whether that means having conversations, tough ones with the family at Thanksgiving, or locking down to construction equipment, we appreciate your perspective and contribution. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. As we go to air today, the Indiana Senate Utilities Committee is discussing Senate Bill 309, which is targeting at net metering in the state. Net metering is a practice that allows solar energy users to sell excess power back to the grid. The committee is scheduled to vote this morning on whether to send the bill to the full Senate for a vote. Earlier this month, concerned citizens asked about the bill during a legislative update hosted by the League of Women Voters, Bloomington Monroe. State Senator Mark Stoops and State Representative Matt Pierce, both of Bloomington, responded to the concerns. We'll hear part of that discussion in today's Eco Report feature. Senator Stoops is the first to speak. This conversation was recorded on February 4th. So, Senate Bill 309, it does a couple of things, but the, the key thing, the key item of concern is that it tries to do away with net metering. So basically, net metering is if you have a solar array on your house, you're producing electricity and using it. Uh, meanwhile, you're also using electricity from the power grid. That's, that's basically um, uh, supplied by the utility. Uh, when you are producing more power than you're using, your meter goes backwards. So basically you're paying, um, you are saving retail rate for your electricity. Uh, what the utilities want to do is say that instead of you saving money by the electricity you're producing, they just want to pay you a wholesale rate for it. So utilities can go buy their electricity from power suppliers outside of the state, anywhere else, and they'll pay a wholesale rate. Now they are saying the reason for that, um, they are saying that other rate payers are subsidizing the solar, the people who own the solar panels. There are a lot of studies by reputable 
agencies and that show that that's not the case. In a worst case scenario, it's a break even. Um, so other rate payers are not subsidizing people who have solar arrays on their house. Um, the utilities will say that it's uh, they're subsidized three times um, what they are costing. So again, it's false, but you have competing studies. Uh, this this idea of doing away with net metering came through the American Legislative Exchange Council. If you haven't heard of them, they're like a national group of both legislators and corporations. Corporations write the laws. They hand it off to the legislators, usually with uh, some hefty campaign donations. The legislators then go throughout the country and try to introduce those in their, their own state houses. Um, that's what's happened here. It's why it's happening everywhere in the country. Uh, now, the, the, the thing is, Indiana supposedly is trying to promote renewable energy. Um, when you have a lot of different owners that, have, uh, that are producing solar or wind energy, you're also um, making your electrical grid more resilient rather than having to rely on, for instance, in Indiana, it's coal-fired power plants by and large. Um, the utilities don't want to admit that they are being completely subsidized by ratepayers. Utilities are guaranteed a profit um, through the Indiana Utility, Utility Regulatory Committee, and, and they just basically want more profit out of it. If they can pay these uh, families with solar on their homes less money for the electricity, then they're just going to be banking more money. Um, when they talk about uh, ratepayers subsidizing something, basically there's, we have an Edwardsport power plant, cost billions of dollars, subsidized by ratepayers. Every ratepayer who's paying for electricity now is paying $10, $20 on their bill to subsidize Edwardsport power plant, which took dirty coal, turned it into gas to fire the turbines. That facility hasn't produced any electricity. It was kind of a sweetheart deal between the Daniels administration and, and a friend of his, um, and there was a guaranteed contract. Uh, the legislature actually backed up that contract, but it's, uh, uh, the ratepayers are paying for it. So the, the argument has to be made that, one, the IURC should be able to decide how much uh, these uh, families with solar rays on their houses are reimbursed for their, for their energy. It shouldn't be left to the utilities to decide how much to pay. Uh, so hopefully that's something we can get in the bill. There's another part of the bill that's cogeneration of power. That means the big industries who are actually producing power or heat um, as, as an offshoot of their business, or maybe they'll invest in their own solar arrays, uh, want to be able to produce their own power. Uh, so that's a part of a bill I think could be a very good thing. So how do we separate that? How do we uh, correct the flaws in that bill is the question. It's a Senate bill, right? Yeah, Senate yeah. Bill okay. 309. 309, okay, good. Okay, next question. My name is David Parkhurst. I'd like to ask each of you how you would vote on or amend Senate Bill 309, which Senator Stoops already did a wonderful job of introducing. There's an identical bill in the House, which is 1188. Uh, the Bloomington uh, government has had a project going called the City Solarized Project. 
and over 240 people have shown interest in doing that. My wife and I plan to put solar on our house. Unfortunately, these bills would end net metering 10 years from now, and that would be very important for the uh, economics. I'll, I'll jump in on that because I serve on the House Utilities Bill, which will probably eventually get that. I think the decision's been made to move the Senate bill and leave the House bill just sit there. And um, so I'm a strong supporter of renewable energy, of net metering, and things to get us to a better mix of energy. The, um, the bottom line here is the electric utility industry is entering the death throes of their current business model because distributed power and energy efficiency is going to get to the point where our houses can stand alone in energy. And you might need some backup from the grid, but the more distributed power grows, the more their business model is endangered. And the other thing is when they build a big power plant, that goes into the rate base and then they get a rate of return on that baseload. So they make the most money when they're generating the power with big baseload plants. That's the most profitable thing for them. When they have to buy power from small generators distributed across their territories, that becomes a problem for them. And so this is happening in every state in the union. It's just a rear guard action to try to hang on to their business model as long as they can. Once the battery storage issue, electric storage issue is solved, the whole thing just implodes on them and they're done. And so we're, this is gonna be just like just before the internet showed up. If you think about what your telephone was like back in the 80s or 90s and watching TV and all that and you compare it today, it's like night and day. And that's what's gonna happen in the energy world. And so I would oppose this bill and uh, I'll see what happens in the Senate. It may get adjusted some, but I doubt it'll end up being very good in the end. I think, Mark, you've already stated your position, haven't you? So, Jeff, we need to hear from yes, you. I, I believe in net metering, so uh, those who put solar or renewable energy in uh, shouldn't be disincentivized to keep those facilities up at your own cost, and uh, so that's how I stand, but thanks. Okay, good. Briefly, there's, I think there are a couple options. Yeah, one, one option is just to try to kill the bill, and there is a lot of op opposition. Uh, the other one, as I said earlier, was just to try to, to amend it to say that the IURC can do the study and figure out what is the, the proper rate uh, to pay people with solar or other wind generation, et cetera. You're listening to Eco Report on WFHB, bringing you environmental watchdog reporting from South Central Indiana. Eco Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues, from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light, and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. It's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of South Central Indiana. This is In Nature. The cerulean warbler is a small songbird of the warbler family only about 4.3 inches. Adult males have pale cerulean blue and white upper parts with a black necklace across the breast and black streaks on the back and flanks. The population is dropping faster than any other warbler species in the United States. The population decline is 
since 1966. It winters in South America and migrates north in the summer. It breeds in forests with tall deciduous trees and open understory, such as wet bottomlands and dry slopes. They can be found in Indiana. The cerulean warbler feeds primarily on insects and nests in trees using bark fibers, grass stems, and hair bound together with spider webs. They lay one to five eggs that are grayish to greenish white with brown speckles. Their call is buzzy notes ending in a higher pitched trill. You've been listening to In Nature. And here's our weekly events calendar. You're invited to join the Indiana Audubon Society for a Goose Pond Cranes field trip on Saturday, February 18th from 9 a.m. to noon at the Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area located at 13540 West County Road 400 South in Linton, Indiana. For information and to register, email s-t-e-r-r-e-n at indiana.edu. The Indiana Forest Alliance is hosting a Stand Up for Your Forests rally on Monday, February 20th from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the Indiana State House in the South Atrium in Indianapolis. The Alliance is asking the legislator to stop the 400% increase in logging in Indiana State Forests. Register for the rally at forest-rally.eventbrite.com. For more information, send an email to info at indianaforestalliance.org or call 317-602-3692. Hilltop Gardens at Indiana University, located at 2367 East 10th Street in Bloomington, is offering a spring garden planning and winter class on Saturday, February 25th from 1 to 3 p.m. Learn about plants that succeed in Indiana and much more. Register by February 23rd at bloomington.in.gov parks. There is a fee for this class. A peninsula hike at Lake Monroe will take place on Saturday, February 26th from 12 to 2 p.m. Come enjoy the 360-degree view of Lake Monroe from Sycamore Land Trust's newest preserve, the Amy Weingartner Brannigan Peninsula Preserve, located on Rush Ridge Road, off of State Road 446 in Bloomington. Meet at 11.30 a.m. in the Blooming Foods East parking lot. Parking is limited and carpooling is encouraged. The Bloomington Community Orchard, located at 2120 South Highland Avenue in Bloomington, is offering a class on dormant pruning of fruit trees on Saturday, February 25th from 2 to 4 p.m. Participants will learn how to prune fruit trees during dormancy in order to improve structure, growth, and health. The class is free. And if, you would like, and if you would like to support Crow, who is being held at the Morton County Correctional Center, you can visit supportkrow.org. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by Solar Systems of Indiana, designing and installing renewable energy systems. SSI is a member of the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners and works to foster the acceptance of solar energy across the Midwest through education and consultation. More information by phone at 812-336-2785 or online at solarsystemsofindiana.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Dylan Maloney, Ann Laker, and Aaron Comforti, who also edited the script. 
Our events calendar was compiled by Juliana Daly. Our feature was edited by Sarah Vaughn and Drew Crawford using audio recorded by Community Access Television Services. Our executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Phil Casper. And I'm Aaron Comforti. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before KiteLine for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, Eagle Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.